Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies, and we have a great guest tonight on a great topic, a class of organisms that have been around uh, for a very, very long time and contributed a great deal to the marine ecosystem, including right here off the coast of California. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, we have uh, Dr. Sarah McAnulty is from, um, got a PhD from University of Connecticut, talking to us tonight from uh, Philadelphia, and she's Executive Director of Skype a Scientist, and we're very pleased to have you, Sarah. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. Thanks for having me. And uh, we usually ask our guests to talk a little bit about how they got into what they do. Uh, maybe I got a story from their childhood as how they first got interested in ecology or and then uh, kind of what that trail kind of looks like and as they entered their professional life so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background please sure yeah so I grew up right outside of Philadelphia um, and I like you know this was in the early 90s um, Jurassic Park had just come out so at the time I was really really interested in dinosaurs like most kids at the time um, and I would go to the library with my mom uh, when I was a kid and I um, borrowed this video it was a National Geographic kids video all about the ocean it was called really wild animals and about halfway through the video, um, Twilight Zone music starts playing and they introduce an animal that I had never seen before uh, called the Broad Club Cuttlefish. And there's a lot of reasons that cuttlefish are cool. But one of the things that they do that's really charismatic is that they do this maneuver called passing cloud. It's like uh, black bands of color will roll across their bodies in what kind of looks like a hypnotist's wheel. It's really visually weird and overwhelming and cool. Um, and it often it helps them confuse prey so that they can grab a snack like a crab um, or a shrimp or something. Um, and at the time, I thought it was like the weirdest, coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, and I was immediately transferred from dinosaurs to squid and cuttlefish. Um, my parents really didn't know what a squid biologist was, didn't know that that was a job. So at the time they said, you know, maybe you'll work at the Camden Aquarium, maybe you'll work at SeaWorld, we don't really know. Um, and so I kind of thought that that was not a job until I went to college and met um, a Lydia Mathger, who was a, a scientist visiting BU to give a lecture. She gave a talk all about cuttlefish. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, being a squid scientist is actually a job. Um, from there, I begged that lab to let me work with them over the summer, um, got a job working in Roger Hanlon's lab um, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Um, and then, you know, years later, ended up getting a Ph.D., uh, in molecular and cell biology, working with uh, symbiosis in Hawaiian bobtail squid, which are these like key lime sized rainbow colored nocturnal squid um, that live kind of all over the place. The species I was working with lived in Hawaii, but they those squid like them live all over the place, including California. Um, yeah. And then um, after getting the PhD, I started running um, a, a nonprofit called Skype a Scientist that helps connect people with all different types of scientists all over the world. Amazing. Well, cool. We're, we're very much all for uh, you know, communicating science to the public and and uh, talking directly to scientists like yourself. So that's that's really wonderful. Tell us a little yeah. bit about a little bit about squid. Uh, they're, they're invertebrates, uh, but how do they kind of fit into the, the classification of, and uh, what other kinds of, uh, they're mollusks, of course, but what other kinds of uh, organisms are, are, are they related to? 
Sure. Yeah. So, so squid are cephalopods. Other cephalopods include octopus, cuttlefish, and nautilus. Um, the squid, octopus, cuttlefish all kind of are, are one type of cephalopod. And then the nautiluses are weird and different in a bunch of uh, ways. Um, if we zoom out one more layer, they are a type of mollusk. So they're uh, most closely related in within the mollusks to like uh, snails, um, slugs, banana slugs for the Californians and the land snails that you might see um, crawling around on the sidewalk or your backyard. Um, and then that's, yeah, more broadly within the invertebrates of which there are a zillion. Um, and they're all very, very diverse. Cephalopods have been around for about 500 million years. That's longer than trees have been on Earth. They've been around for a really, really long time. And during that 500 million years, they've changed a good amount. They started as all having shells. Many of those, um, shells have either gone uh, evolved inside the bodies of the animals or been lost entirely. Um, cuddle bones, uh, which folks may have fed their birds, um, are a type of internal shell. Those are in the cuttlefishes. Um, and then a pen, uh, which is like a barely their internal shell, is present in some squids, but not all of them. And most shallow water octopuses don't have shells at all anymore. Some deep sea ones have these little remnants that are kind of floating around in there left over. Oh, cool. Over that 500 million years, they've developed some pretty cool adaptations for the, 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 the way they live in the ocean. And uh, I'm thinking you know, of eyes, <laughs> their propulsion systems. And, uh, maybe you could fill us in a little bit on some of these cool adaptations they have. Absolutely. So one thing about cephalopods is that they live pretty much everywhere that's marine. So there's a lot of different ways to be a cephalopod and lots of different adaptations that are relevant to different parts of where they're living. So some, uh, many of them uh, in shallow water change color. The ones in the deep sea don't. Maybe the ones in the deep sea bioluminesce. Um, and many of them bioluminesce. Um, as far as their eyes go, this is one of the classic examples of convergent evolution um, in two animals that are evolve totally independently of each other, aside from the fact that, you know, we're all on Earth, uh, sort of, no one's totally independent on Earth. So their eyes are like ours in that they have lenses in their eyes. The lenses allow them to see uh, sharp images. It helps with visual acuity, helps bend that light um, so that we can see what's going on. Our eyes have lenses. Their eyes have lenses, too. Um, now, what makes our eyes and theirs different from each other is that we have the ability, or at least most of us, have the ability to see color because we have three different receptors in our retinas for different ranges of wavelengths of light. Light has two major relevant properties for vision. One of those is the wavelength that determines the color of the light. And the other is basically just the direction that that light is going, where it's coming from going to. Um, we have the ability to see a range of colors. Cephalopods generally don't. They have the ability to mostly see one color. There's one weirdo that lives off the coast of Japan that has three color receptors, but they're all for blue. So they're really, really good at seeing different shades of blue, where to us, it would all look like just blue. Um, but they have the ability to see the direction of color too, and what's called polarized light. We can't tell the direction that light's going. They can. They also can sort of, uh, they may be able to 
uh, affect the color, the, cha- the sorry, the direction that light is going using one of the structures in their skin called iridophores. So they may be able to communicate with each other using polarized light in a way that we and their predators can't see. Um, huh. uh, the color change is also one of like the most uh, thing well, things are most famous for. Um, they can also some of them change texture a little bit to help them camouflage. Um, their skin is very interesting. Um, they can affect, they have multiple layers of kind of like consider it like, uh, additions to their palette that they can create different color patterns. The top layer is called, uh, has chromatophores, which are basically like teeny little, uh, spheres of pigment that are surrounded by muscles. And when the muscles contract, it pulls that teeny tiny pinprick into a wide flat pancake of color. Each chromatophore is generally one color. So it can be red, yellow, brown, uh, et cetera. Um, under that are iridophores, which um, can change color depending on hormones in the squid's blood. They do blues, greens, kind of sparkly colors. Um, and then some cephalopods, not all, have uh, the perfect reflector in the animal kingdom called leucophores. They usually look bright white because that's the light that hits them. But if you shine like an LED that's blue at them, they'll shine blue back. Um, huh. And yeah, they can change that color as quickly as they can think about it. Really? Wow. Their their brains are not super complex, I presume, so thought probably happens quickly. Their brains are really big for their body size. Um, they have very, very big optic lobes um, for probably processing all of that. Wow. I understand that the, the optic lobe of some of the really large squid uh, that studied in New Zealand actually have a lobe that's bigger than the human <laughs> visual cortex. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And their adaptability in the, in the marine ecosystem, they were one of the dominant uh, kinds of organisms for several hundred million years, actually, until fish yeah. really started to evolve in a big way and become predators on the cephalopods. Before that, the cephalopods were pretty much the dominant predators, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, they were um, kind of like death from above. They were one of the first to float up, so they would be able to very slowly float above the seafloor and just like attack things from above. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And they move around with jet propulsion, right? Yes, we didn't even talk about jet propulsion, which is so cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah, let's think. I think everybody who's a cephalopod, whenever you make a statement about cephalopods, like all cephalopods do this, you'll inevitably be able to come up with some exception because um, they've been around so long and radiate in so many ways and live in so many different places that there's going to be somebody that doesn't do it. But I think all cephalopods use jet propulsion. Basically, the way this works, um, their mantle is effectively their version of a torso. That's where all their organs are. Um, This part of their body is open to the seawater. Um, they've got two holes on the sides of their faces uh, that allows water to enter their mantle. Um, so they kind of like expand their body cavity, bring water in through two flaps, um, and then have flaps of skin that seal off where the water came in. Um, they're then able to squeeze their mantles and shoot water out through their siphon or their funnel, which is just like the little tube under their faces that um, 
can help them move. Just kind of like when you blow up a balloon and then let the balloon go and it flies all over the room. It's like that with control. Um, they use their fins to help control where their bodies are going and say stay, stay stable in the water. Um, and then can kind of control which direction they're going based on the where their siphon kind of aims um, and also other motions of their body. So, yeah, they, so can, they, they can point their siphon and the other one as well and kind of move in any direction and change direction really fast. Right? Yeah, they mostly go backwards when they're using jet propulsion. Um, cuttlefish are a really lovely example of this because, again, keep in mind, different areas of the ocean have different types of squid bodies. Um, but in reefs, for example, you know, you've got a lot of structure all over the place. And so you can't just go jetting all over because you're going to whack into a coral. Um, and so cuttlefish use a combination of fin motion and um, the jet propulsion so they can make more fine motor control kind of motions. Whereas these animals that live in the open ocean where there are no structures around, they can full, full force jet backwards and not really worry about bumping into anything. And that comes into play when you try to keep one of these open ocean animals, like in an aquarium or a lab, they get hurt because they're not used to structures oh. in their environment. So they'll whack into the walls. And that's oh. why it's really, really hard to keep many squid in an aquarium. So they don't have like backup cameras or... Uh, <laughs> they need rear, backup cameras. <laughs> rear yeah. view mirrors or anything. <laughs> their eyes are on the side of their face. And because they're kind of squishy and malleable, they can kind of like tilt their eyes backwards and forwards a little bit. So they can look backwards when they need to. Um, it's just that, you know, animals that naturally live in a place with lots of things to bump into are better at looking, like knowing to look. Yeah. And I understand that uh, there are some squid that have binocular vision that have... Yeah, they can move those eyes around a bit. Um, octopuses are good at this too, just kind of like tilting them forward and backward, that sort of thing. Um, and there are some deep sea squid that when you take a picture of them dead on, they look like they're like two headlights looking right at you. Huh. Um, some of the cranched squid, the glass squid, look like that. Yeah, talk a little bit about the the diversity just in, in the squid family. I mean, where do they land taxonomically? And then you mentioned, I think once uh, earlier that there were a zillion different kinds of these things. Yeah. So there are about 300 different species of squid, which in terms of numbers of species is not as impressive as like beetles or moths right. or uh, lots of other types of invertebrates. But they live in a lot of different places and um, the way their bodies are kind of how they look and the adaptations they have really reflect that diversity in um, location. So the deepest squid lives about 3.8 miles below sea level. That's a squid that's super creepy and delightful called Magna Pinna. Um, they can be at most about eight meters long. And most of that is arms. Their arms like hang at 90 degree angles and just sort of dangle. They look like, like out of a horror movie. Um, they're wonderful. Their fins are huge and they very slowly undulate in this like not particularly quickly moving water down in the deep sea. So that's like one extreme. And then the shallowest squid can be found at like ankle depth, incredibly shallow water. Yeah. And there's lots of squid that live that shallow. Um, the smallest squid is the pygmy squid. Uh, they can be like 
fingernail size or even like a fingernail clipping size. They're very, very tiny, like four to 16 millimeters. Um, and then the largest squid are the, the longest ones are the uh, giant squid and colossal squid, which aren't significantly different really in length, although colossal squid are much chunkier than the more like torpedo shaped uh, giant squid. And they can be like 43, 40 to 43 um, feet long. Um, I know I'm wildly switching between metric and uh, feet, but that's what I remember. So here we are. Uh, they get like school bus length. Wow. Wow. And the colossal squid, we have those uh, right here off California, right? They definitely live in the Southern Ocean. So you might, I, I think, I mean, giant squid live pretty much everywhere deep that we've looked, everywhere from the Gulf of Mexico to Norway to New Zealand. Um, generally speaking, the colossal squid live in the Southern Ocean, okay. so around Antarctica. They sometimes can be found like south of New Zealand, but I don't know if like you ever find a coastal uh, colossal squid. Um, I think they're pretty there's- tough. I think there's three of them in a museum in New Zealand. In yeah, in the yeah. Te Papa Museum, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So we have, here in California, they're one of the major fisheries is the market squid, right? And then yes. uh, we also have, a, but I don't think they're always here, is the Humboldt squid, the, the big ones. Right. Yes. Uh, Humboldt squid are um, very cool, but also like the sensationalized in a kind of funny ways. Right. So some years Humboldt squid are big. They're like, you know, six feet. Um, no matter what size they are, they're they're tough squid. They're um, they live in an oxygen minimum zone. So they're able to handle things that a lot of animals can't. Um, they also uh communicate with each other using color change, which, which many cephalopods, we think, do. But we have more of like a um, – we've watched Humboldt squid enough to get a sense for kind of the words that they use to, to communicate mm. with each other. Um, linguists are trying to figure out like are the color patterns that these animals are using – being used the same way we use words in a sentence or or not quite. Um, that research is huh. still in progress. But certainly they can signal to each other like, hey, I'm about to attack um, and that sort of thing so that they don't end up bumping into each other. Um, sometimes they're like two feet long. And that depends a lot on like, is it an El Nino year? Um, what were the water temperatures like? What was food availability like that year? Um, but the Humboldt squid make up the biggest squid fishery in the world. Um, we catch more Humboldt squid than anything else um, in terms of poundage of squid. Um, yeah, they live off uh, Baja, California, and sometimes get as far north as like San Francisco, maybe a little bit north of there, um, but not commonly yet. Right. Yeah, I have a photograph of two black-footed albatrosses tearing apart the Humboldt squid mantle uh, offshore wow. from Sonoma County. Cool. And talk a little about their their life history, I guess, and, and livestock. Because remarkably, they like the, even the big ones like Humboldt squid, they don't really live very long, right? They really don't. Yeah, the smallest ones generally we think live like six months. Um, and I think the longest lived cephalopods um, are, again, are like outliers. So the, we think that the um, vampire squid, which is not technically a squid, they're kind of like their own thing but certainly they live off california um we think they live like 15 years um oh. there is a deep sea uh 
octopus that broods eggs for four and a half years. And brooding time, you know, is just after she's laid her eggs and she's taking care of her eggs. So if we extrapolate, maybe they live 10 to 15 years. We don't really know for sure. Um, giant squid, we think, live like three years. Um, but most cephalopods live a year-ish. Um, many of them, I mean, their, their mating strategies are very variable. Um, sometimes it's an everybody mates all at once and then everybody dies type um, situation. Other times um, they'll mate over and over again, lay eggs repeatedly throughout their lives. Bobtail squids do this. Um, they, you know, lay eggs whenever they have enough energy to do it. Um, uh-huh. And so, yeah, there's, uh, because they're so diverse, there are lots of different ways to uh, live as a squid. Yeah, so some of them are like octopods, which uh, which many of them die as soon as they, they mate. And Lay their eggs, yeah. yeah. There are others that are live a long time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know that the um, vampire squid can mate and lay eggs repeatedly um, over the course of their life. And the nautiluses can live quite a long time, I think 30 years-ish. Um, yeah. And they will have maybe 12 eggs a year total, um, and they mate throughout the year. And so did, how many go are, ahead Tim. Are their eggs just uh, free floating in the water? Do they attach them to anything? What's their strategy there? Variable. So um the open water squid will lay often a, just an egg mass that then floats around. Um but some of those open water squid will carry their eggs with them. There's a couple of different huh. species that do this. Um which are really like haunting looking one of them has like a sheet of eggs so all of the legs are eggs are laying flat in a big sheet others are in like a a cone shaped clump um but that all get carried around one thing that's really important to note about cephalopod reproduction is that and this is maybe i think important because this is what i did my phd on but uh they some cephalopods which include all cuttlefish and um, some of the squid have this organ inside of them um, called the accessory nidamental gland. This is only present in female squid. Um, The accessory nidamental gland, which we just call the ANG, um, is full of bacteria, all different types of bacteria. And the female squid, when she goes to lay her eggs, will incorporate that bacteria into the jelly coating of the eggs. And then she can lay her eggs on the seafloor and then leave them. This is really different from octopuses who have to sit with their eggs, constantly blow air over the eggs, kind of like rub the eggs to clean them um, because they don't have bacteria helping to protect those babies. These other squid can team up with bacteria and then help protect those eggs. The bacteria that are deposited in the eggs um, we've shown have uh, the ability to make antibiotics, antifungals. Maybe other things, too, that are protective. We uh, don't have experimental evidence for anything but the antibacterial, antifungal uh, compounds that they contribute. Wow, I'd never heard that before. That's really remarkable. Yeah. So they kind of coat it with a gel-like substances that contain antibiotics and antifungals. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they put the bacteria directly into that jelly coat so that the bacteria can make it too. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, this is fascinating to me because you know, to me it, it sounds like ranching. They're they're basically raising livestock for their own benefit. They're gathering yeah. these bacteria and somehow fostering their 
growth in this particular gland and then just using yeah. them to protect their eggs, that's that's a remarkable adaptation. Yeah, and it's not the only example of them doing this. The bobtails and also the squid called Eurotoothus also have light organs where when they first hatch uh, as, as little baby squid, they can recruit bioluminescent bacteria from the seawater and then store them and house them in their light organs um, where they feed and grow that bacteria over the course of their lives. Um, they're squirting that bacteria out every morning to seed, we think, the, the local environment with that bacteria that helps them. Um, and then continually keep a live culture of that bacteria going in their light organ um, to help camouflage using light. So these squid are nocturnal. The bobtails will, uh, you know, forage for food at night and have the ability to, to detect how much light is coming down from the moon and then use this like shutter lens uh, system that they have in their light organ to allow the same amount of light out from their belly, basically, um, to match the light coming down from above. Oh, um, so they can hide. Yeah. A fascinating system, too, yeah. Wow, that's wow. so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if you've just joined us tonight, we're talking to Dr. Sarah McAnulty from Skype a Scientist, and it's all about squid and the fascinating creatures in the ocean. So uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, these things must be endlessly fascinating for researchers because you're just discovering all these yeah. wacky, weird things. So, totally. uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the reproduction of squid. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so it varies a bit. Um, generally speaking, the the males hand over spermatophores, which are packs of sperm that the females can store um, until it's time to lay eggs. Sometimes that's a short period of time. Sometimes that can be months. Um, hmm. Squid reproduction um, and cuttlefish reproduction um, sometimes uh, can happen all in one burst. The One of the famous ones of these is um, in South Australia, uh, the giant Australian cuttlefish all gather in like late May through mid-July-ish um, in huge numbers. Mate a bunch of times, the females um, will mate with a bunch of different males. And then when she goes to lay her eggs, kind of reviews the collection of spermatophores that she's collected and then chooses which males to fertilize her eggs with. Um, the spermatophores are what I often call like the ketchup packets of the sperm world. You can just like <laughs> store them in your purse and then when you need them, uh, crack them open and use them. Um, the the uh, other squid um, kind of mate more sporadically uh, throughout their lives. Um, generally, it's like face to face. So like the cuttlefish will kind of just like put their faces together and then the male will hand over sperm. Sometimes the sperm is stored in the mantle um, in little areas where the spermatophores can hook in to like the mantle cavity. Um, hmm. Other times it's like a little spot in their arms where they like have little storage areas. Uh, depends on the species. Um, and then there's one um, squid, Octopatuthus, which lives off the coast of California that the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute has studied, um, where they'll just mate with any squid they encounter they don't check if it's a male or female squid um they just like shove like punch sperm at them um <laughs> which is one strategy because they encounter other squid so infrequently that they want to take advantage of every uh same species encounter that they have hmm. um, i don't know if there's evidence that other species of squid that they encounter also uh get a uh sperm deposit or if it's just their own species 
Um, but certainly they're not uh, not waiting um, to hand it over. So these Australian cuttlefish, uh, do I understand you correctly that the females may have sperm packets in their mantles from a number of different males and carry those around for a while and then it's go, okay, it's time to uh, produce my eggs. Let's see, let's uh, see, we've got, we got some stuff from Paul here and we got some stuff from Joe and we got mm-hmm. stuff from Harry and they kind of make a decision. Uh, totally. That must be an in, that must be an interesting process, you know. I bet it <laughs> is. Like, <laughs> can review the fitness of uh, each of these sperm packets, you know. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also nice because so sometimes the males will be a bit aggressive, so they don't have to like re- necessarily reject a male for mating. They can just like say, okay, okay, thank you. Uh, store the sperm, but then never actually use it. So it's like a lower um, risk mating situation. They can also mix and match the males within a clutch. Um, they don't have to put all of their literal eggs oh, in yeah, one yeah. basket. They can say, you know, I'll give Paul five, I'll give John seven, and you know, twenty five will go to my favorite male or whatever. Um, it seems um, like that. This is really, really ripe for uh, some really interesting population genetics uh, studies and fitness studies. Yeah. Has yeah. anybody yeah. done anything like that? Uh, okay, so there was one. There's another story I'll tell you about the giant Australian cuttlefish. Because there are about like eight to ten males for every female, um, it makes competition among the males really intense. And so the bigger, stronger males will like literally wrestle with each other um, in these dominance displays. But the smaller males like don't really stand a chance in these big wrestling matches. And so they've uh, developed a, an alternative strategy for gaining um, access to females. Um, in these situations, uh, the males will generally be like purple, blue with black zebra stripes. Uh, the females will be kind of like a splotchy maroon and white. Um, now, what determines they look, the, the fact that those are the colors that they are, I mean, they're doing that themselves. There's nothing that requires them to be that color. That's just how they signal um, their sex. So some of these smaller males will turn on uh, pink and uh, white splotchy to look like a female, <laughs> cruise past the bigger males, go over to the female, and then at the 11th hour, change back to blue-purple, mate with her, and then get out of there. Um, and the population uh, – I don't know if this is – this is not really a population study, but a paternity study that was done uh, witnessed this and then took genetic samples from different males um, that the female mated with and then did paternity tests on the clutch of eggs and found that proportionally more of the egg clutch was fathered by the male who, like, pretended to be a female and then switched back than these like beefy large males right oh my god yeah. <laughs> pretty cool yeah that is way cool and also i just cannot believe people aren't writing stories about that that's just <laughs> yeah that is such a remarkable thing to so we got transgender squid here kind of yeah that's a whole cross, it's like yeah. it is a question of like gender expression kind of like yeah. uh, like gender yeah. expression in an animal because most animals yeah. you know they're like they are the plumage that they are they, they can't like be changing it back and forth and in cuttlefish they can um so you know we usually say gender is just a word that we use for humans um but i think this is like a an interesting case study in uh 
sex expression at least yeah their their gender is fixed they're not really transgender they're just cross-dressers yeah they're just yeah, like they're, yeah they're using that as Sneaky. a you know, yeah a really interesting strategy because they're in a really weird situation i didn't realize there was such a huge differential in the uh, the ratio the sex ratios most uh, most yeah, animals that's not are always closer true. to 50 um yeah and in other squid species it's closer to 50 50 too um uh-huh. these Australian cuttlefish just happen to have a really skewed gender ratio or sex ratio rather and hugely biased uh, you know like 90 almost 90 percent males that seems really unusual in the animal world for sure yeah it's a, it's yeah. a little reminiscent of some uh, the way uh, sexuality and mating in some salmon occur where they you've got uh, you get males coming back that are undersized. You know, they they may only spend a, a year or two out in the ocean instead of three or four, and they come back and they kind of sneak into these these nests that the uh, female makes to lay their eggs. They'll sneak in quickly and fertilize them uh, while the the big males are hanging around waiting for right. I don't know for whatever. <laughs> so yeah, sneaker males are not unique. To, to the cuttlefish. Uh, there are other examples in the animal kingdom, too. Yeah. Are there there's other examples where, though, they can change their their appearance? I don't think that much. Not, yeah, not, not that the, I know of. Uh, that's the one that, that stands part is out. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. And these deep water squid that you mentioned, they they just, they're, they're in an environment where there's just not very many uh, of their own kind to run into. So... They have this strategy of just mating with whatever squid they run into in the hopes that that they pick the right yeah. sex. That's that's a bizarre one as well. Yeah. Lots of bizarre stories within cephalopods for sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to put up a, a photo on the, on our uh, webpage when we uh, broadcast the show of Vampiratuthis. I just love the yeah. name of that. It's it's scientific name. I forgot the species. But its scientific name actually translates as vampire squid from hell. Yeah. <laughs> Vampira toothus infernalis. Infernalis. There you go. Pretty good name. Yeah. <laughs> from the but, inferno. And and that's yeah. just, uh, but that's just human uh, arrogance. Based, that's an appearance-based description, right? They just look creepy, totally. but they're actually not a very, uh, they're not a very infernal creature. No, they're chill little animals. They yeah. eat marine snow. So like dead stuff, poop, mucus that's like falling from above. They gather that. There's um one of the uh like big extremely knowledgeable squid people, um, Mike Vecchione works at the Smithsonian. Um, he is like, I bet they sometimes hunt. Um, but we just haven't seen it. Uh so he is skeptical that um it's it's exclusively marine snow consumption, and honestly, anything Mike says goes. Um, I believe completely. Um, <laughs> he knows more about squid than I think anybody that I've ever encountered. Um, but yeah, we don't have any like videos of them attacking. But a lot of these animals that we think eat one thing, if given an opportunity, will eat something else. Just like herbivores, like munching on a squirrel or something like that, can happen. Some of these squid, uh, humble squid, are famously. Uh you know, just prodigious eaters. 
Yes. I, so if you need to constantly be like actively flapping to stay up in the water, um, different cephalopods have different approaches to buoyancy. Some, particularly deep sea squid, will incorporate ammonia into their tissues. Ammonia is less dense than water, and so it helps them stay neutrally buoyant without having to work for it. Um, but Humboldt squid are swimming around really actively a lot of the time, so need to eat a lot. They even sometimes cannibalize each other. Um, mm -hmm. They're voracious. And they're famous for attacking fishermen, too. <laughs> yeah. Infamous, I should say. You mentioned the ability to uh, change depth. Um, and I, the the deep scattering layer that uh, squid pay, play quite a uh, role in, in that all over the oceans. Um, squid will travel with the diurnal migration. So the, at night, everybody come in closer to the surface right, and then right. going back down. Uh, yeah, certainly squid follow with that. Yeah. Yeah, talk a little about that because it's a remarkable phenomenon. Yeah, so effectively um, at night, many organisms that live deeper in the water will come up shallower. Um, and I can't remember the energetic explanation for this. I know it has something to do with um, like algae and um, the cycle of production um, but it's, you know, it comes from the smallest animals driving all of this. Um, but, you know, when your food goes uh, toward the surface, you're going to follow with it. And so this also can help, um, like, people who want to take pictures of deep sea animals can go what's called black water diving. So you uh, go diving in um, water that's, you know, deep, but not absurdly deep. Um, and you can get images of these, like, what you consider to be deep water animals um, beautifully. I think black water diving is so scary because it's just blackness all around you in, in all directions, um, as if blue water diving wasn't scary enough. Um, but you get some of the most amazing deep sea photography uh, like I've ever seen. It's really amazing. And the, the depth ranges is, are pretty staggering. I mean, they're going hundreds to even thousands of feet. Yeah, I don't know the details about that, but certainly they're traveling really big distances vertically daily. Yeah. You get a lot of meso mesopelagic animals that come up almost to the surface. Right. Yeah. They're you know definitely following the, the higher production in the surface waters. Which yeah. for us terrestrial creatures is astonishing because we we can't survive more than just a you know a few hundred feet down there. The pressure will just crush us, and these things are going. Every every twenty four hours, they're going up and down through these unbelievably Major high pressure, pressure transitions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and they have some way of just coping with that. <laughs> these rapid yeah. The nice thing changes. about a squid is that they don't have any air pockets in their bodies, so they're not as susceptible to getting wrecked by pressure change as like a, a fish with a swim bladder or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. So some of these squid have, you said, ammonia in the tissues that are, that's mm -hmm. lighter than water allows them to kind of go up and down vertically. Uh, and uh, does many squid have that sort of capability or is it has them? I imagine it's only a few squid that's been investigated. in. But. It's pretty deeply widespread. Um, colossal squid, giant squid, uh, glass squids, the cranches, and there's a fair number of cranches. Um, a lot of these squids that kind of look gelatinous all have that ammonia incorporated. Um, it's, right. it's uh, yeah, pretty decently widespread in the right. in the deeper water species of squid. 
including the Humboldt squid famously because it makes them really, you have to do a, like you said, they're the most, uh, they're the biggest squid fishery worldwide. And yet you literally can't do this processing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get the money out of the tissues. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, Many years ago, there was uh, a kind of an eruption of Humboldt squid all the way up here off Mendocino, and fishermen went out and gathered a bunch of them up, and uh, and a whole bunch of those people did not know that, and then were really like, were really unhappy when they discovered they had just you know loaded the boat up with this completely inedible squid. And yeah, the the, yeah. the work required to make them edible was huge. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we've got about maybe 20 minutes left in the program. Let's uh, let's keep on with these fascinating creatures. Bob, did you have something there? Yeah, I was just going to ask a little bit about the fisheries. Uh, have, do you have much uh, expertise on the various fisheries that, uh, I know we've got a big one in California, but I don't know much about it here. And uh, Certainly, people are eating a lot of uh, market squid, which is dory toothus. Out in California, you're eating uh, dory toothus opalescens. In, uh, on the East Coast, by me, you're eating dory toothus pilei. Um, dory toothus pilei used to be called lolago pilei, and they are like a foundational species for neuroscience research. Um, a lot of, um, if you've ever heard of the, the patch clamp method, it's a way of studying um, like signals moving through neurons. Um, that was all pioneered with um, dory toothus because they have ginormous axons. Um, you call it, you, hear, you often hear in neuroscience research talking about the giant squid axon. It's not gi- axons from giant squid. It's really big axons in regular like calamari squid. There's a single cell with uh, axons that are <laughs> centimeters long, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a neuroscientist today have kind of like been like we, f- we figured everything we're going to figure out from those axons but i think there's still you still kind of as you're training you might uh play with a squid here and there um and the biggest squid fishery on the east coast is in rhode island um when the dele- the democratic delegates from rhode island were um like on tv along with all the other delegates from all the other states um pitching in their their votes for i think nominating joe biden um they did that with a tray of calamari in their hands uh, because they want more people to know that there's this huge squid fishery in Rhode Island. Um, so that that cracked me up. But lots and lots of squid are being caught um, off Rhode Island. Um, in the world, uh, people eat a lot of flying squid. Um, arrow squid is what some people call them. Um, flying squid are a thing that we could talk about just yeah. in general because that's another like weird thing cool thing that squid do um Didn't know they exist so these there are yeah there's a couple different species of flying squid um what makes them unique is that they have the ability um to like web their arms together in like a nice flat plane that can catch air um so they swim near the surface they take a really really big like jet propulsion squeeze and then fly out of the water and glide near the surface they um, like stretch their fins out with a kind of like arc that helps them catch air and then maintain that with um, with the wings of their arms like webbed together. Um, they are the kind of all of that? over the place in the Pacific. 
Why do it's they getting do away it? from a dolphin or something or a tuna or whatever? Um, Same as flying can fish get do. Then far yeah. fast, totally. It's just like a flying fish. Yeah, they're not they're not foraging on seabirds or anything up there. <laughs> they're out of the water. Uh, <laughs> they're not eating seabirds for sure, but seabirds, I bet eat them. Um, anybody, yeah, right. any animal that like eats an- other animals, if you encounter a cephalopod, it's like the easiest meal. Um, my yeah, former yeah. advisor, Roger Hanlon, calls them like swimming protein bars because there's no bones to deal with. You can just like get a quick protein snack and keep moving. Yeah, um, yeah, Squitter, yeah. desirable food. Very, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Almost everything in the ocean eats squid. And, and yeah. Yeah. They're, they must be energy dense food as well. Kind of oily. Yeah. But they do give off aroma too, right? So the a lot of the seabirds that hunt by smell... Uh, are really drawn to the smell of squid. Hmm, I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, albatrosses in particular eat a lot of squid, and yeah. they uh, they find them mainly by smell. When the when the squid cool. come to the surface, they can really smell them. Hmm. I certainly know the smell of squid. So they eating the distinct. They eating a dead squid, or are they actually able to capture? Uh, live squid that are swimming near the surface or do they apparently are able to capture the live ones they uh there's i don't know if they know for sure how much feeding they do at night but there's uh there is some evidence that they actually do a lot of feeding at night when the squid are up near the surface because the albatrosses can't Mm -hmm. dive at all so they have to pick them right off the surface yeah Yeah, i'm trying to remember the names of the seabirds in alaska that uh one of the biologists that we were involved with up there uh, was looking at that they, they went out to sea and uh, at night and would hunt uh, squid and come back and they, they would analyze the uh, the gut contents or yeah with, uh, and found a lot of squid beaks in their yep, stomachs exactly yeah so are most fisheries conducted with uh, light attraction uh depends so some of the ones off Rhode Island, I think, are um, they use sonar to find the like big pile of squid and then trawl there. Um, but light is a really effective way to get squid to show up. So, um, I, yeah, I'm not sure about like the mechanisms across the world of catching squid, but certainly light is really a common way to get them to show up. Even when we're like when I'm trying to catch um, market squid um, in Rhode Island. Uh, I'll like go out at night um, and usually there are like almost always Japanese folks hanging out on the bridges with huge lights. Um, And so I go over uh, and talk to them um, because my lights are just not big enough and they have these huge industrial like lights um, to just pull them up from the um, off the bridge in Narragansett. Um, Those people have been very helpful to me in my PhD. So shout out to the the dudes at the bridge in Narragansett. (laughs) <laughs> uh, for helping me catch some squid for science, uh, yeah. So they got like a net; they just pull up underneath them. I think it's often, yeah, um, trawling, like pulling a net behind you. Um, in Japan, when um, so in when is this June? Um, when the firefly squid mate, they all come to the surface. They're firefly squid are like this big, um, which for our audio people, let's call it three and a half inches ish. They're not very big. Um, but these squid typically live like 200 to 400 meters below the surface, I think. And then they come to the surface, um, during mating season, 
uh, lay a bunch of eggs that look like little strings of pearls that then float around um, in the water. But then they all die. And so the folks living around there and the birds and the animals, everybody comes out to eat a bunch of firefly squid. Um, and you can take a boat out. They certainly use lights to attract, I think. And then they pull up these nets between multiple boats. And it just looks like a light show because these squid are incredibly brightly bioluminescent. Their mantles are covered in tiny little photophores, which are blue and green. And then the ends of two of their arms each have three photophores that are really, really bright. And they look like, you know, very visible to the eye, incredibly bright eyes or um, photophores. And so you can see just like, you know, bright blue nets. Hmm. Um, and that's also on my bucket list of things to check out. <laughs> so the, the uh, some squid have uh, captive bacteria that are bioluminescent. Do, do, I know some animals have their own uh, Lucifer and Luciferase reactions going on in their tissues that are not necessarily from ba captive bacteria. Does, uh, does squid have both those systems? Both, yep. Um, I, I, I literally just was at a talk about this in early January. I, either seven or nine times the photophores, um, so the uh, autogenic photophores, so the photophores that make light from squid protein, not from bacteria, have evolved something like seven or nine times. Um, one of those two, I can't remember. Mm. Um, but yeah, lots of different cephalopods generate light. The biggest photophores in the animal kingdom it goes to a squid, uh, Tinegia danae. Um, they are like seven and a half feet long squid that have about lemon-sized photophores, so really, really big. Wow. 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 Yeah. yeah. They must light the ocean up. I know out here on uh, off, off our coast, you sometimes see fishing boats that I presume are jigging squid. They catch a lot of squid here by jigging for them with a really bright light up on the top mast of the boat shining down on the water at night and you can see them out there at night and uh wow cool bringing the squid in and then they've got these big long complex uh jig arrays that they use to snag the squid basically cool jigs are what i use when i'm squidding um yeah. depending on the squid yeah bobtail squid you just like walk out and use a little dip net and grab them um but that's for like science when i need like 10 squid right not when i need a thousand squid <laughs> You're not filling the hold, yeah. Yeah. So, are are the squid fisheries generally well regulated? Do you know, or um, have so, they been overfished like a lot of species? They're they're not as regulated as fish, to my knowledge, because so far the ocean has done a pretty decent job of producing as many squid as we want. Um, that's going to change, um, but. So far, so good. Um, I mean, I think part of this may be because we fished out a lot of squid predators. So uh, oh. now we're kind of, uh, uh, you know, maybe that's part of it. Um, and uh, so one thing, okay, so if you had asked me this question in 2016, um, there was a paper between a bunch of different uh, squid biologists that came out that said, you know, cephalopods are doing great. Um, there are more now than ever, like maybe not ever, ever, but certainly in recent human history, um, tons and tons of, uh, of cephalopods. Um, and then recently uh, that was revisited and we said, you know, we're kind of getting to the point where um, heating of the oceans is starting to um, impinge on um, where they're happy. So each animal broadly is going to be happy at a certain range of temperatures. And for squid, um, 
particularly squid that live in areas where they can't move around a lot. They're not really migratory. Um, the heat is making the geographic area that they're comfortable in smaller and smaller and smaller, particularly like, you know, in the Mediterranean, maybe um, in areas like that. So um, the pri- we, we think that the primary cause of uh, squid struggle at the moment is it's just getting too hot for some of them where they live. Um, if we keep fishing them at the level we're fishing them now, or, you know, we might, we'll probably run into problems, but that remains to be seen. There's so many things that are kind of changing all the time, um, with climate change hitting us, um, in new ways all the time that, um, yeah, remains to be seen. Um, some squid species are doing great. Others, um, are starting to get hurt, um, by climate change. Cuttlefish species in particular, I think are getting hit harder than, others um at least a couple of species of cuttlefish are struggling for a lot of fisheries they they base the uh estimates of the size of the fishery or the size of the population that's being fished based on what the what the what the fishery is is pulling in uh, every year uh do we have any other ways with the squid of, of knowing how big the populations are or are there acoustic uh estimates of population size or what do we know about populations or are they just pretty much an open question for most species? Good question. I do not know the answer. I think for some squid, so uh, one of the issues with um, a lot of squid species is that they live in places that are really hard to get to um, and are just really hard to sample. So a lot of deep sea squid species, when you look at like the, the IUCN page, it's just data deficient. Like we do not know. Some of these squid species we've seen once, like <laughs> the ramshorn squid is a great example. Um, we've collected a fair number of ramshorn squid and certainly you see um, their internal shell is like a, a spiral, like a kind of a loose spiral, not completely like the spirals aren't against each other. Um, and they'll wash up on the beach. So we have evidence for ramshorn squid all the time. But we've only gotten one video of them ever um, in 2020. Um, wow. They look like a little breakfast sausage. They're very cute. Um, but, like, how can you say whether something is increasing or decreasing when, like, you you don't see it very often? Discotuthis is another one of these that we've seen maybe twice. Um, we just got a video uh, that Mike Vecchione thinks it was like, I think that's a disco this too. Um, so that might be like the second or third time we've seen that squid. So it's really hard to know. We're certainly putting more robots with cameras in the ocean than we probably ever have before. So we're, you know, putting more eyes on the deep sea um, so we can learn more about these animals. But um, very challenging to know, you know, what was the population like 50 years ago? Right. We don't know. Right. Yeah. Right, and yeah, and like Bob says, we mainly tend to judge populations of these uh, market fisheries by how much we're catching. We really don't have any idea how that translates to what's out in the ocean and what the natural variability in that is. Right. And there's so many different things that affect the catch. And then as as technology increases, he he continued to catch... Uh, as many as before, where there's fewer in the ocean. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Your, your catch can keep going up until all of a sudden it just crashes at once. And yeah, yeah. You didn't notice. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. happened to cod in Canada. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a familiar story. Well, we are down to the last couple of minutes of the Ecology Hour tonight. If you've just joined us, uh, we've been having a really fascinating discussion about squid and the entire class of animals uh, in that category. And... Uh, 
just a few of the many really remarkable adaptations they have demonstrated to us and some of the things that we are learning and still trying to learn about them. Uh, our guest tonight has been Dr. Sarah McAnulty of uh, a uh, nonprofit group called Skype a Scientist. And so we want to really thank her for coming on with us and sharing all this knowledge about these incredible creatures. Uh, Dr. McAnulty, is there anything uh, that you would like to leave our listeners with tonight? Uh, any concluding things or things that you wish you had talked, <laughs> that we had asked you about that we didn't get to? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> good question. I um, I teach like a five-week class about squid. Uh, so I talk about squid for like 90 minutes, five weeks in a row. So I'm sure we didn't cover everything that there is to know about squid. Um, there are a lot of – there's just so much that we don't know still about deep sea squid that, um, you know, I, I hope that a lot of the squid species that we don't know enough about yet don't go extinct between now and uh, when we learn about them. Yeah. So, you know, do what you can, you know, get solar panels on your roofs if you don't have them already, <laughs> especially you Californians that get more sun than we do in Philly. Um, you know, try to prevent climate change in whatever way you can so we can protect my uh, my favorite animals in the world, squid, yeah. and all the other animals they share their ecosystems and we share this world with. We never did ask you about what your PhD uh, research with squid was. I think I think you just kind of we touched on it. It was the um, the relationship between the bobtail squid and the the bacteria that lives in the reproductive organ, the accessory nitimental gland. And uh -huh. then I also worked on the um, bioluminescent vibrio fissuri, the the bioluminescent oh, bacteria yeah. too. So it was all about um, like development of those relationships and um, also a little bit of, of the immune cell side of things that we didn't get to touch on, but. Um, yeah, all symbiosis, molecular and cell biology of squid symbiosis. Cool, cool. Really remarkable stuff. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you very much for coming on the show with us tonight. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thanks for having me. And if any yeah. listeners, like, you know, know a teacher, know a scout troop leader, a librarian um, that would like to have a scientist talk with their group for free. My my nonprofit Skype a Scientist matches all of these groups and more with um, scientists, volunteers for free. We serve thousands of classrooms and scout troops and libraries every year. Um, so, you know, please take advantage of our program. We've got thousands of volunteer scientists that just want to share what they know with people. Um, and you can sign up for that at skypeascientist.com. Oh, that sounds wonderful. We probably could do a whole show about that as well, huh? Yeah. Oh, Tim, Tim, maybe you put a link on, put a link on our uh, website. Yeah, we'll have definitely put a link up on our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com, and we'll put some, uh, try to get some images up there of some of these cool things and links to some of the research that Dr. McAnulty mentioned. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Well, good night, everyone, and thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we'll be back with you next month on the Ecology Hour.